I had made a couple of calls to people because I was trying to figure out where he was and was becoming more concerned as time went by. And then, you know, two police cars showed up at my door and then I knew that something was was really very wrong. Before you are mentored by Amy Patrick, that's basically what it felt like to me the whole time. I mean, because people who've experienced something along these lines, they just have so many profound things to share because you know what we all have in common as humans? Pain. And when someone walks through a journey of pain at this sort of level, there's something for all of us because all of us are and will go through painful seasons. What a happy way to start. So Darren's passing was a family affair at Seacoast, broke a lot of hearts, increased the conversation and implementation of mental health and ways we can keep healthy as a church family. So I invited two other friends. They both will be joining me at the end of both episodes, honestly, so we can talk through the mental health components of what Amy went through from a licensed therapist, Chip Judd. We know there's a lot of people who listen, including myself, who struggle with some form of mental illness. Some of what we talk about hopefully is resourceful. Roy Jakes, pastor of one of the campuses, and Chip is a licensed therapist and pastor on staff here. He literally helps us with our mental health, us as in SECO staff. So in honor of the example Jesus set before us, in honor of Amy Patrick's journey from here on out. We say praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Just because I don't believe or agree doesn't mean I can't learn from you. Why did you have to bring that up? (laughs) Okay, that one I'm super embarrassed about. (laughs) Do you like me? Do I like you? Yeah. As, a, as an individual or as yeah, a podcast? Yeah, as a person. Well, person. I like you. Okay, cool, yeah. cool. And I don't have any interest in appearing to be stronger than I am. I ain't found a Nebuchadnezzar statue. He gonna leave. You feel me? How do we love people who see the world differently than we do? What would it look like if we truly loved all of our neighbors? Could listening to their stories be the first step? This is Seacoast Church, and there's way more to talk about. So, Amy, it's good to see you. We've talked a decent amount about this conversation before having it. And today, we're obviously going to talk about the passing of your husband, Darren Patrick, and the scenarios surrounding this tragedy, but obviously also all through your lenses. And I wanted to clarify something to our listeners but I want to do it in front of you so you can maybe recalibrate. We're kind of centering this conversation around 2016, 2020. 2016 is when the church situation happened with Darren. Is it safe to say being caught with some stuff? Also, it being brought to his attention of how he's been leading and those sorts of things. And it ended up in the removal of him from the position, correct? That's a great way to say it. Yes. All right. And then 2020 is when he took his life life. Yes. How did you end up at Seacoast? You know, I'll back up a little bit and say Uh that uh, Darren and I planted a church in St. Louis in 2001 called The Journey. Uh, We moved to St. Louis to plant the church and the church grew very, very quickly. You know, we had hoped that we would have a congregation of 250 to 300 people and that would be amazing. Uh, And it grew much more quickly than that in ways that we never expected. Over a period of years, I can remember a specific conversation we had one day in the car where we said, this this is going to make it. What are we going to do? <laughs> There's a <laughs> lot to keep up with here. So, you know, there were so many good things that happened at the journey over those years, but things got pretty out of control pretty quickly. 
as far as being able to keep up with that kind of growth, you know, really take care of people well, and even just personally dealing with the stress of that kind of pace, multiple services, multiple locations. So I think, you know, all of those factors combined with some personal unhealth in Darren that just escalated over time. Darren was fired um, from the journey in 2016. Uh, It was a very, very painful, very difficult experience for us. I never argued um, with him being fired because it was clear he he was in a position where he needed some help. Um, But the circumstances leading up to it, I think were really difficult, um, poorly handled in some ways, showed me a lot of things about, you know, kind of what we were dealing with in in our situation with our church. So we had a year from 2016 to 2017 of a restoration plan that was put together by The Journey. I think there were really good intentions. And I want to make sure our listeners know The Journey mm -hmm. is, is the church you guys started. Correct. That is the name of the church we started in St. Louis. I think there were good intentions, you know, behind that plan. Um, but it was it was really poorly handled in a lot of ways. And I don't say that just because it was hard, because it would have been hard regardless. And we knew it would be hard and we entered into it knowing that it would be hard. Um, but a lot of things poorly handled in a way that ended up being really traumatic for us. Some really good things that happened out of it. Um, you know, some relationships with some really wonderful people who have guided us and who I'm still in relationship with today, but a lot that was very challenging coming out of that year too. And so at the end of that year, there was no more plan offered to us. We didn't know what we were doing. And Greg, very, Greg Surratt, very graciously uh, suggested that Darren do some work at Seacoast as a teaching pastor, um, some work in leadership development, but really more than that, that we just kind of had could have a, a safe place to kind of land and stabilize, you know, for a little bit there. We were able to do that without moving. Greg agreed that it was important that our kids have, have, have some stability. And so we stayed in St. Louis and Darren would commute, you know, to Seacoast and we would come out periodically. And we just really were so loved by the Seacoast family. And it was such a, a safe place, you know, for our, for the kids, myself, for Darren. And we just really hadn't had that. The restoration plan had not been a safe place for us, which was really difficult. And, and we just needed, you know, that kind of safety. And so I think part of what happened for me in 2016 and 17 is that I became painfully aware of some of the realities uh, of our church uh, and kind of the way that the system was operating that I think were were pretty unhealthy. And, you know, Darren owned a lot of that. He was the pastor. So he owned a lot of his own responsibility for that, you know, as, along with his own sin. So I'm by no means placing blame there. Um, but there were just some parts of that that I I came to see that I didn't agree with, that I didn't really want to be a part of in the ways that those were functioning anymore. And so kind of coming out of that and being able to land in a place like Seacoast where people really loved us well was just so healing for us at a time when we were really all very wounded. You're always going to have accusations and people saying, Darren shouldn't have been doing this and Darren shouldn't be. But were you ever uncomfortable thinking, don't know what they're doing here. I wish. No, I, I never had any of that. I, I knew that, you know, Darren had a great relationship with Greg. In my view, appropriate accountability, supervision there. It wasn't like Darren was just left to do, you know, whatever he wanted to. So any of my discomfort was just around, I just want us to do the right thing here. Like, I just 
what is the right thing? You know, what does that mean? There are so many different opinions and we are just trying to move forward here in a healthy and biblical and good way. You know, we're not trying to do anything amazing here. We're just trying to survive, you know, still. So my discomfort at that time was, had nothing to do with Seacoast. It was just around, we were just trying to rebuild, you know, from such a traumatic season of life. And um, I have nothing negative to say. Uh, And that's not, it's not like I wasn't aware or wasn't looking or wasn't paying attention because I, I felt like I had to be hyper aware of, are we doing what we're supposed to be doing? But, you know, I think we certainly did the best we could. And I think Seacoast did the same. And I am, I will always be grateful. This is my little soapbox listeners, <laughs> but I want to ask the question, hey, what if there was a situation like this where everyone messed up? I believe that we still need to find a way to, how do you approach that with love? It feels like they have to have someone to blame once they can find that person or organization or a group of people, then they throw love out the window. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, and again, I want to go back. I'm going to say that we're all we're all pretty messy, you yep. know, and that church is messy, life is messy and awkward, and um, it is easier just to have someone to blame. It's easier to have a bad guy and a good guy. It's easier to have something that's more clear and cut and dry in that. And not that there can't be some clarity, but I, I, I agree with you in that we have to always keep the focus of loving God and loving people. You know, if we're not about that, I don't know. I don't know what we're about uh, anymore and, and understanding we're going to make mistakes in that process. And we can go back and say, we're sorry and adjust and move forward the best we can. But I think that's the best we can hope for. I think, you know, the organization that was hired to help us was really just in over their head. I don't think they had bad intentions. Yeah. And I'll I'll say this and just for for information's sake, Darren told me that there were other pastors who were suggesting to him, hey, don't do this process. Like, just get out of this thing. And he wouldn't hear it. He's like, I'm, I'm going to walk through whatever I'm asked to walk through. That's accurate. We had some concerns, you know, going into it, but felt like we really need to do whatever we can. You know, this was never about getting back into ministry. It was about what does it look like for him to be healthy, for us to be healthy, for there to be as much reconciliation as possible, you know, to just come out way differently, um, you know, than, than how he was going into that process. And I, I do think there were good attempts were made. There ended up being some parts of the process that were um, ended up being enormously helpful, but overall it was tough, you know, in, in a lot of ways. And so at the end of that process and kind of trying to figure out what are we doing, Greg Surratt, who had been um, a part of Darren's restoration team of pastors in that process. Is that a different team? You have a team of pastors yeah, and then you have yeah. a team that you said... There was a team of pastors that were a part of the restoration process that, you know, were kind of talking with Darren, meeting, you know, kind of speaking in those kinds of things. Greg was one of those pastors. And at the end of that year, you know, had suggested the possibility of, um, you know, Darren doing some work with Seacoast in a teaching capacity, you know, in some leadership development. But really... As I understand it, the intent of that was to have a little more time to stabilize, to continue to get healthier, to have some good supervision, and to really have a church family that loved us. He was totally willing for us to stay in St. Louis and for Darren just commute periodically and for us to come out. And but that's how we got to Seacoast. We had we had been, you know, Greg and Darren had been friends for years. We'd been out there, you know, before, but that's kind of how that relationship got started in 2017. Wow. And 
was really a beautiful, beautiful thing for our family. Yeah. Greg ain't too bad, is he? That's he's, Greg's he's, a, he's a good one. <laughs> I don't, I try not to hold it against him and that he's a Cubs fan, but we'll, we, you know. <laughs> I know you and I don't like these labels and we do recognize this as an, an issue in the church, but did other people eventually see Darren in the light of celebrity? I mean, I think so. Unfortunately, like, <laughs> you know, I, you know, and I think that's part of the problem is, I mean, you know, when I tell you, you know, early on in the story that we hope to have a church to 250 and 300 people, that was, that's the truth. You know, that was, was never on our radar, but things could spin out of control pretty quickly. And, you know, Darren, I mean, I don't have to say this for him because he said it himself that he got overly caught up in, you know, kind of building that identity and that persona of success around that and just overworking, overachieving all of those things. So I, there's a real danger there for sure. Yeah, and it it sounds like it did not start that way. That would get any of us, possibly. You see something like, man, me and my wife are working really hard. Things are exploding. This feels good, and I got to maintain it. You know, and it's hard when all these opportunities are coming your way, when things are happening very quickly, not to feel very honored, you know, by those opportunities, and then having to make decisions about, should we say no to this? It seems like a great opportunity, not just personally, but for the kingdom of God, you know, like what are, that's what this was about. And so Darren said himself, and it's true that he just didn't recognize the part of him that really was looking to build an identity and to, he didn't recognize what was happening internally as far as how important those things were becoming to him as a part of his identity and sort of that persona of success until they had really kind of spun out of control. I mean, honestly, I think that's a, that's a human deal looking for right. significance. And that can only be met, in, in my opinion, with faith. <laughs> yes. We see pastors fall all the time and it's, it's heart-wrenching that it's becoming so normal. But one thing that we've seen as these stories come out is these pastors and, and their wives have like zero relationship. <laughs> and, you know, some of these pastors are writing books on marriage and you're like, oh my gosh, no, your, your marriage almost was non-existent. It doesn't right. sound that way at all between you and Darren in our conversations. Like you even said that you would call them out all the time on stuff. I, I mean, I would say so. I would never say that we had a perfect marriage. Um, I, what I can say is we worked really hard at it. You know, I we really loved each other and we worked really hard at it, which meant we fought a lot. <laughs> you know, we're very, two very, very different people, even just by temperament. And so there were a lot of things to work out. You know, we challenged each other a lot. We had probably the thing I miss the most, you know, is talking to, to having these conversations with him where we talked about these things on a really deep level. And so I've had to really be ruthlessly, ruthlessly honest about looking back at our marriage. And I, I don't have regrets about our marriage. I feel like I really, I know, gave it my all. And I feel like we were in a place where we were really um, working hard at it and, and struggling through it at times for sure. And there are things I see, you know, more clearly after the fact, of course, but I, I would never be able to say that we had, you know, a sham of a marriage or we're just sort of holding it up for the public or, you know, the perception. It just wasn't true. I'm sorry to hear that. Me and my wife actually do have that kind of marriage. We, we were pretty much flawless. <laughs> That's great for you, Joey. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, some people I tell that and they're like, yeah, right. I appreciate you saying good job. <laughs> hey, how you, you said that Darren had some unawareness. 
How aware were you just in general of mental health stuff? For me personally, I've, I've learned it firsthand. Now I really understand anxiety and, and all of that. But did you have an unawareness also? There's a couple of ways we can talk about awareness. You know, we can talk about what we're aware of within ourselves. And then we can kind of talk about within the greater, particularly Christian community, you know, awareness of mental health. Personally, I had not, you know, I didn't experience significant anxiety ever in my life until 2016. And then when all of that happened, I thought, I understand on a different level what some people are dealing with, you know, when it comes to anxiety. I think that I've always had a pretty compassionate and empathetic view uh, as far as mental health struggles. I've always believed that those were real and that we needed to tend to those with a lot of empathy and compassion. And I think Darren would say the same, but I think he was pretty unaware of many of the factors that were in play, you know, within himself. And I, I think a lot of time this, this comes down to what do we know about what we've lived and what the impact of that was on us emotionally, relationally, how we view the world, how we view our losses. I, I just don't think those categories are talked about enough in the church. I don't think we have robust enough paradigms to help people really consider what does your spiritual life mean in light of those things. And I think we have to do a much better job of connecting those dots. I agree for sure. So when something like this happens, I, I, I think we all know that it's it's shocking regardless, but did his suicide make sense to you? Uh, no, it did not make sense. We were, we were completely blindsided uh, by his death. And, you know, we actually had to wait about eight weeks, uh, almost two months to find out for sure, if you can ever know for sure. You know, we had a medical examiner's report that, you know, his death was ruled as a suicide. But until then... We were told that that's what they thought had happened, but we really had no you know, clarity on that at all. There's a lot of different ways that these situations play out. And sometimes people are in a situation where they're concerned about someone for months or years and are understanding that that suicide is a, is a real possibility. That was not the case for us. There's a lot of mystery you know, around it for us. And there's a lot of mystery to our faith and a lot of mystery to life that we often just have to accept in the absence of more clear answers. I think we often think that clarity will give us uh, the peace that we're looking for. And, and I get it. I, you know, I think clarity helps us feel like we have some control sometimes over horrible circumstances. Um, but we don't have a lot of clarity around that. It came as a complete shock. And I, and I bet you are constantly being asked why, 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 what, 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 how, how, how. It's got to be pretty taxing, <laughs> I would imagine. It, it is. And it's taxing personally to sort of be in a space where you're consumed with wanting to know why and, and trying to understand and figure it out. But I think I've also had to just drop the responsibility uh, to be able to offer an explanation uh, for Darren's life, for Darren's death. You know, there's a, there's a lot that I could say. There's a lot that I lived up close to him. It's not that I'm trying to not answer a question, obviously, or avoid. It's just that it was his life. He spoke, I think, a lot about his mistakes, his regrets, what he wished he would have done differently. Um, I think he owned a lot of things there. He obviously can't, isn't here, you know, to explain his death to us. But I've had to sort of step out of the place of feeling like that was that's something that I need to do for the rest of my life, or something that I need to be responsible for. I just don't think it's a healthy place for me or a help, helpful way for me to move forward. When you kind of dive into the stories, you know, of what 
happens or what it looks like, you know, when this happens with someone, there's a wide variety of how this plays out. I think a lot of us have some certain ideas about, you know, what it often looks like. And I just think there's more, there's more to it than that a lot of times. And often we're, we're not going to know uh, or have great explanations for exactly what has happened. So you remember Chip Judd, right? Of course. (laughs) I love Chip. So him and uh, Roy Jakes, who was another friend of Darren's are going to be joining me on, on this episode, honestly, so we can tap into a licensed therapist being Chip. But trauma is something that we discuss a little bit, and I'm very uneducated on it. Do you understand trauma a lot more having gone through what you've gone through? Yes. I mean, I, I certainly think so. You know, honestly, 2016 was traumatic in a lot of ways. Uh, Darren's death was incredibly traumatic for myself and my children and a lot of our family, a lot of other people. Um, my dad just died at the end of, you know, 2021, which was another very quick, unexpected, traumatic death in my life. So I've, I've seen quite a bit here in the last six years that I think has helped me understand trauma from a a much different perspective. And I think, you know, it's, it's a different thing to know about it cognitively and then to sort of, not sort of, to experience it, you know, in your life in multiple ways. And I, I think understanding what happens in our bodies with regard to trauma, including our brains, the long-term effects, how things play out. It's much deeper than just being able to think about it in a particular way or for enough time to pass. There are really, you know, just long-lasting effects that, that take time to heal. And I hope that as a culture, we're learning to understand the nature of trauma, you know, uh, better. I hope so. I hope we're getting there. But I think it's a really, really important topic for us to explore. I, yeah, for sure. So Amy, it seems like we live we live in the same world and there's a lot cancel culture. There's so much polarity. And it's, it just seems like we struggle with humanizing our fellow man. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking about Darren's passing and that if people were actually willing to say very definitive almost more than opinionated statements about a guy they don't even know, I'd say humanizing people is an issue in the church also. Yes, I I definitely think that it is. And I, you know, I understand at least some of the factors that lead us there because frankly, it's easier. It feels simpler if we can put people in categories of all good or all bad, you know, or it's, it's very black and white with no gray or someone is totally restored or, or totally healthy or definitely not restored and definitely not healthy. And I just don't, I just think people are more complex than that. I think life is messier and more complex than that. And although I understand that it feels like it would be easier at times to just make those categories, I don't think we help anyone, you know, when we do that. And I think we end up on these poles, these, you know, as you said, these polarized places of kind of not knowing where to go. And I think we've got to be able to hold tension between things like sin, you know, sin is real. And there are things that people need to stop doing. There are behavior patterns that are really awful and problematic. I think we are at a key moment in the church where God is cleaning house, honestly, in some ways that are really painful and uncomfortable. On the other hand, I'm going to say that our pastors are never going to be anything other than human. 
I think we have to think about our expectations for them, not to say that we shouldn't hold them to high standards, uh, but I think we also have to ask, are we expecting things that are beyond what's even possible, you know, for a human being? And so there is a lot of wrestling around to do in these categories, and it's not clean or cut and dry or messy, but I think we have to do it because all we're never going to be anything other than human beings while we are alive here. And I think if we can relate to each other in that way, it it's, I don't know what other choice we have if we're going to move forward in ways that are healthy and biblical. Yeah. This is just my opinion. I, I feel like we toss around the word pastor a lot. And, and we all know what we're talking about. We're talking about the man or woman who is leading a church, oftentimes large organizations. I think if we want to get into the technical definition of a pastor, it's a shepherd, it's someone who really cares about the needs and wants to help people. Was Darren a pastor in the technical sense? It's a really good and a really important question because I agree with you in that the terms are confusing. As far as his heart, and this is, I think, not just my opinion, but it's the opinion of many people who called Darren their pastor because of the way that he related to them, not just because he was the one that was preaching on Sunday. I have people contact me even now. I had somebody this week who, you know, contacted me and said, Darren was my pastor. And their heart in that is not just as a figurehead, but in that shepherding kind of way that you talked about. However, I think we also have to be realistic when we're talking about the size of a church as to what's actually possible for one person, what that term means. What does that term mean when a person is also a visionary entrepreneurial leader who is sort of, you know, setting the pace for quick growth and those kinds of things, how is that compatible with pastoring and shepherding in the way that we're talking about? And how do we need to define those roles in ways that are actually realistic, that allow people to be taken care of, um, but also allow for churches to flourish? And I don't have all the answers as far as how that gets spelled out. And I Dang it, that was, my next, that was my next question, Amy. <laughs> I wanted to I know. know the answer. <laughs> it's one of those places where gosh, it'd be great if we could land, you know, and frankly, it's easier. And this has, this is not a comment about church size by any means, but it's a little more cut and dry if a church is on the smaller side and it's feasible, you know, for a pastor to be actively shepherding in that way. I don't know what it means when our churches are bigger and how do we do all that? But I think we have to keep answering the question. Uh, But as far as Darren goes, that was always his heart you know, and, and he loved doing that and was, was good at it, but it was impossible to do that for everyone, you know, in a church the size of ours, um, you know, and that was part of what got really confusing and, and problematic as things grew very quickly. Everybody, everybody goes through pain and we know that it's the human experience and oftentimes things are fixable. And this is not one of them. We talk about the power of acceptance. Was there ever a time in which you felt power in accepting the fact that this happened and I can't fix it? Yeah, I don't know that I felt power necessarily. I think I did feel and have felt and still do feel some peace with acceptance because I don't know how to move forward if I don't accept that this is this is the reality. This is what I'm living with. Uh, this is what happened and this is how we have to move forward. And there was certainly a period of time where I would have mornings and wake up and think, I can't believe it. Like, I can't believe this is reality. But I think we've definitely moved to a place of acceptance and being able to move forward from there, which is is really challenging 
but also really important. I think another thing that comes out of acceptance for me, I know, you know, a lot of where we want to go when we have these conversations is could this have been prevented? And are there ways that we can prevent this kind of thing in the future? And I don't think there are easy answers to that. I think sometimes, particularly when it comes to suicide, we even try to put some easy answers around, well, if that person just had someone to talk to, or quite if they frankly, weren't so daggum selfish. That's yeah, the one that just, bothers me the most. Uh, it's just <laughs> never that simple. You know, it's just never that simple. And so if we're going to be able to prevent this, a couple of things I think are key. One is that we have to have safe places for people to go and a culture where sin is taken seriously and unhealth in people's lives is taken seriously, but that you are truly met with grace and particularly relational grace um, that we know how to relate to people out of a position of grace, which is, does not mean that there are not consequences or removals or any of those things at times, but that we can be safe uh, for people. I think a lot of times when it comes to grace, we talk a good talk and we have no idea how to actually live it out, particularly with people who sin differently than we do, if I'm going to be very honest about that. So we have to have a place where it's safe to do that. But I also think we have to get better at having conversations around emotional health and spiritual health and maturity and what those things actually mean. I think we have to help people be able to go deeper into their lives to understand the trauma that they've lived, the losses that they've lived, and the impact of those things on their lives today and what's actually happening internally and externally, how those things are playing out. I just, I think we have a really weak paradigm for that. And I think it has to get better if we don't want to see more of this. I think there just have to be more conversations around that type of spiritual formation for really going to be not just well-intentioned people, but if we're really going to be mature, I think we have to move in that direction. Do you feel as strong as everybody sees that you are? Like oh. from an outsider looking in, we're like, man, she's strong. I bet you don't feel that way, do you? Oh, no, definitely not. Gosh, it's hard to put into words what the impact is of such a, you know, monumental, life-changing, traumatic event. And really, you know, kind of a series of those, you know, I think I do feel resilient It yeah. is what I feel. And I can say almost two years later, I think I can talk about resilience, which does not say though that I don't at times feel very vulnerable and like I'm not doing it well and not figuring it out. And, you know, you go look at the state of my kitchen right now, you'd say she's not doing well, <laughs> you know, just keeping all these things together. I, I don't, I don't feel like that at all. It's, I understand what people mean, you know, when they talk about strength and there is a strength. I think that is absolutely from the Lord. And also there's resilience that you build. I think right. suffering, it changes us. Suffering changes us for sure. Right. But no, there's many days where I think I have no idea what I'm doing. I, when I'm right. single parenting these kids, when I'm navigating the world as a single woman, what in the world? I mean, th- right. when I'm managing a whole household, when I'm trying to figure out what a meaningful life looks like, you know, right. it feels like a mess a, right. a, a lot of the time for sure. Yeah. And I don't have any interest in, you know, appearing to be stronger than I am because I I don't think it's helpful to anyone. So just know there's a lot of vulnerability underneath (laughs) anything that looks like strength. All right. So the million dollar question, Amy, where do you go from here? Last night, I was really thinking about why did I put Chip Roy in (laughs) on the schedule (laughs) to kick off 
such a heavy episode like this. But then I started thinking, I was like, you know what? If Darren was at this table, it would be the same tone. The last thing that would be on Amy's mind right now is, you know what? Around this conversation, no fun is allowed. No laughing. And this is, I have... I've been telling people that we're going to let folks in on some inside jokes. How many people (laughs) do y'all think believes that Roy used to bully me? Everybody knows we graduated together. We have pictures of us at like my four-year-old birthday party. And so I just started this narrative that... Joey literally every time he has introduced himself uh, that I've been in the room has always told that story. So there's no doubt people have come to actually believe that. There's some people that that really believe that. I believe it. Nothing going on here today dissuades me from believing that. we graduated in 95. It was around 2008, 2009, they decided to have a reunion. So it wasn't a 10-year <laughs> or 15-year. Roy and Angie, Priscilla and I, we all go together. Roy and I are reacquainting ourselves with each other this season. I'm just like, oh my gosh, all these new people, you know, all these familiar faces. And I'm like, oh, Roy, that's something. Y'all remember it? Blah, blah, blah. And then I would walk away. Roy came up to me probably five minutes later. Yep. He said, you listen, yep. don't ever do that to me again. He said, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> He's like, it doesn't matter if you've reintroduced. I'm not remembering true, them. <laughs> true story. Joey remembers everyone. He remembers names. Joey remembers stories from middle school. I'm like, how do you remember those things? I don't know, man. That, and the, do yeah. you realize what you're telling us right now? That you lived at such high altitude <laughs> oh that God. the little people's <laughs> names and stories don't mean anything. To oh you. my word! It doesn't matter where, who they were—little people, big people. That's right, and that's uh, why, and that's why I believe you bullied Joey. Yeah, and and the narrative <laughs> kind of works because if you do your history research, he's a football player. I know it. He's super I know popular. It. I know he's it. bigger than most kids, but in an it. athletic way. And I'm the outcast. This is a no-brainer. So now let's shift to serious. Chip is a bully around here. <laughs> One hundred percent. He's the smallest guy in the room. But it's job security he's, for him because if he can mess with people's minds, we always need counseling. He's the least athletic guy in the room. Oh my gosh! But verbally, dude, don't make me share my resume. <laughs> it's good to be with family to talk about something like this. I was thinking about this on the way here, and I remember how tough it was to see some of the most integral leaders at our church so broken and there was nothing we could do really other than, hey, we're here for you. Someone mentioned the other day that they felt like Seacoast folks as a whole weren't necessarily pastored through that situation thoroughly enough or something like that. That was a leader at Seacoast who, who said that. It wasn't someone throwing rocks. And I started thinking, I was like, that makes so much sense because the top guys yeah, ne- yeah. that, that oh, do pastor geez. all of staff, they, they needed pastoring. They mm-hmm. were broken. I seriously have a horrible memory, but there are certain things that stick out. I remember the night that we got the, the text message. Yeah. I remember the table, sitting at the table. At your uh, house, because yeah. we were all on Zoom. I think it was like a uh, mandatory campus pastor meeting at nine o'clock. Yeah, we get and, a text and we message never get late stuff at night. Like that. Never. But I remember sitting at the table, opening up my computer. You know, we're all sitting there waiting for Pastor Greg to get on, wondering what in the world is going right. on. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Chip, but I came on there, typical Joey, acting a fool, and you weren't mean or anything, but you you were like, Joey. No, no, no. Mm. And then I was like, oh, gosh, like something is really up. I was aware of what the call was about. So totally. You had known for how long at that point? Minutes. Minutes, really? Oh, Oh, yeah. 
I had never really gotten to know Amy Patrick. I got to know Darren in these hour and a half or so that I've spent with her. I felt like I was mentored the whole time. Like she's a really incredible special person. Oh yeah, she's a very sharp lady. She's reflecting on something that I don't understand. I've never lost someone that close just to hear the the hope that she has, but also the honesty with what she dealt with, what she's dealing with. I really feel like when you go through something that heavy, you don't have a choice but to either close yourself completely up or just be transparent. It's like, yeah. look, I, I don't have time for acting right. one way and, and I, this is just right. me. But trauma, a word that I kept thinking about, we throw around like crazy mm-hmm. And obviously, when I hear the word trauma, I know relatively what that means. But like from a scientific standpoint, I don't know what has happened to someone physically when they have trauma or they're traumatized. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like Amy Patrick, when she found out what she found out, and let's just say, you know, three weeks into this thing where everything is just completely fresh, walking a nightmare, what's her brain doing? What's it look like? You know, you mentioned somewhere in there about like what is trauma? And I, I, I did a little research just for the fun of it to, to get conciseness. But like the American Psychological Association would de- define trauma as an emotional response to a terrible event. An emotional response to a terrible event. That's a cool one. I'm not sure if that was a good choice of word, but go ahead. Cool. He said that was a cool one. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a tra- trauma is a response to an event that a person finds highly stressful. Trauma rewrites reality because trauma is an event that's outside of your expectation. Uh, you got out of bed this morning and you thought, well, you know, I'd like to go to the beach and it, it might rain. Well, if it rained, it's not traumatic. It's within the realm of what you might expect. You know, gee, I'm going on a trip. Uh, I might have car trouble. So you have car trouble. That's not traumatic. It's disappointing. It's hurtful. It's whatever. Trauma is an event that redefines reality. You're, you're cruising along. You, you know, you mentioned Amy and, and, and what depth and character there is to her. The thing that I really respected about her is afterwards, we talked a bit, not a lot, but a little bit. And uh, and I loved her choice of wording and I loved the, the immense amount of honesty that was compacted into it. And here's what she said. Darren was a very complicated person. And I thought, wow, she's telling me everything I need mm. to know without any dishonor or disrespect. Mm. Here's my point. She was living a life with a man who was complicated, to use her word, but reality still didn't contain what happened. When I get stressed right now in 2022, it's probably pretty normal. Like nobody would be like, oh man, that's crazy. You need to get that checked out. It's like, oh, that makes sense. I felt the same way today. In March of 2020, when I'm like maybe three months out of my mental health crisis, I'm sitting there with my friends who I love and we're having fun, but then just some of the details that we were being given and then some of the responsibilities that I was acquiring through that meeting. Mm -hmm. And I started to just be overwhelmed with anxiety and I knew that it was kind of irrational. By the time I got home, the family was out of town. I don't remember why. I was in really bad shape. It felt like I was knocking on the door of how I felt four months ago. Go, and I didn't know what to do other than to just kind of crawl in bed and, and take some deep breaths. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything crazy about the circumstances of that day. Mm-hmm. I have those kind of days all the time now, and it doesn't do that. Was there trauma that I was revisiting being so close 
to the time in which I was like, I, I don't know, would you even call it trauma with what I went through? I was going to say, would it make you feel better if you knew I went home from that same meeting and crawled in bed? And- <laughs> 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 Wait, all of us felt that way? Oh gosh, scratch the whole example. <laughs> you know, I think, Joey, what you're setting up there is the fact that life experiences, period, change our brain chemistry. Traumatic experiences change our brain chemistry and dramatic ways. What you had come through was traumatic. You know, I guess you'd have to say yes to that. It was what I would call almost like chronically traumatic because it lasted for a season, right? It wasn't an event. But what it did was it, again, it re, it redefined reality for you. Like you, you went places, experienced things, and came to the edge of things that are unsettling is too weak a word. So what that does is it is it rewrites brain chemistry. It makes you know your your anxiety responses to things different. It makes your 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 ability to 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 reestablish homeostasis and you know okay I'm okay again. It affects your brain chemistry. For me, that's one of the biggest things the church has been slow to do, and that is to bring in the brain part of mental health, the brain part of trauma, the brain part of spirituality even. And so for me, when I hear you share that story, here's where my mind goes. What happened, Joey, is you got a normal daily amount of stimulation that had an anxiety component to it. But your your brain's capacity to respond in a healthy manner to anxiety was jacked up. So Roy jokingly says what he said a minute ago. In reality, he's probably being somewhat honest. He probably went home with uh, an anxiety of two. But in your brain-altered state, that same stimulus created an anxiety response of six or seven. Now, here's the beauty of it, and this is the encouraging part of it. You were taking all the right steps. You were moving in the right direction. And I think you would say today that what's happened is your responses have gradually gotten back into what we would call a more normal range. Does that make sense? But here's yeah. the key I want to stress. We're not talking about, well, Joey, you know, you just need to pray more or Joey, you, you know, you just weren't thinking right. It is a physiological brain issue that your brain's ability to take in, pick a response and then carry out that response was massacred. Temporarily. Yeah. You would remind me of that a lot. Because I think if you, you tell me, if you get it right, see it right, it brings grace. Oh, certainly. I think most of the times when you said that, it probably gave me a lump in my throat or tear. I mean, the tears were just flowing during that season. But yeah, it was like, oh, okay. So, oh, you kept telling me this is happening to you. That's right, Joe. You just kept telling me that over and over. Yeah. And I, I think I needed to hear that. And I'm not. Com- That's I, a great way to put it, by the way. Did, I, he, just I did, com- did he just compliment no, himself? No, no. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I did. I guess I did. But, but I and you and I, have, you and I have talked this through. Well, y'all aren't so. <laughs> that was a great way to put that, Chip. <laughs> you and I have talked this through, and, and we won't get into it a lot here now. But I definitely think there were circumstantial stuff in my past and decisions that I had made during the past that contributed. So I don't right. I'm not I don't think you're saying you're just a complete victim. No. You you are saying, hey, all the stuff that happened, even decisions you've made, all of it, now you're at a place where this is happening to you. Right. Whatever it took right. to get you here. Right. Yeah, but Joey, our topic trauma. You are a victim in the sense of an event happened that's beyond your control that you are experiencing consequences from. The trick is your brain 
is going to respond to it in ways that you can't control. Doing things a little bit differently this week. Part two of this conversation will be coming out Thursday, September the 8th. Don't forget in the show notes to join our Facebook discussion page and subscribe. Hey, we don't want you to miss one of these episodes, man. 